I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. When you go to the zoo, what animals are on your must-see list? While plenty of folks line up to see the primates, big cats, or peacocks, you'll find me with cobras and venomous snakes. But zoos have been criticized for holding wild animals in captivity for human entertainment. These critiques have encouraged zoos to amp up their animal welfare programs and conservation efforts. Our own Nashville Zoo is stepping up their efforts of habitat preservation. Later this hour, we'll learn about the zoo's program to help a special breed of salamander and discover how revitalization is a better path than conservation. But first, you've been in a bit of haze about the water we're have about the weather we're having. Pardon me. We're going to take a moment to dig in what's really happening with our climate. It is hot. It is hot. Nashville flirted with 100 degrees last week. We've had rolling heat advisories, and we're also hearing a lot about air pollution and seeing these air quality alerts. Here to break this all down is WPLN's environmental reporter, Caroline Eggers. Caroline, thanks for being here and welcome back to This is Nashville. <laughs> hey, I'm glad to be here. Glad that you're here because it's hot. So break this down. Except for last week or so, people have been saying this summer felt a little bit cooler than normal. Is that true? Yeah. So this June was about one degrees cooler than our most recent climate average. But I think our perception is a little off this year because of last summer. So last June, we had 20 days that were over 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. And that was our second hottest June on record, I believe. Okay. (laughs) It was my first summer here in Nashville. (laughs) Definitely felt every second of it. Okay. So that was the early summer trend that we've had. But what what if we step back and think about this entire year? What are we seeing in terms of temperatures? Yeah. So the first six months of this year were actually, I checked on Friday, two and a half degrees warmer than our normal. So if we actually look back to winter, January was our eighth warmest on record and February tied for the second warmest on record. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So (laughs) as much as the heat, I think air quality is on many people's minds. Talk to me about how the heat affects our air. Yeah. So right now we're having um, really two major problems with air quality. The first is ozone pollution. And that's basically mostly from fossil fuel burning our cars. It's mixing with sunlight and it's worsening our air. Mm. That's that's ozone pollution. It's very common and it's really in the summer. But then we're also getting more particulate matter than normal because of the wildfires in Canada which, you know, record-breaking wildfires, also tied to it being very hot and dry. It seems like we're dealing with wildfires all the time, if not from Canada, from California or some other place, particulates. Yeah, uh, this is, I think, one of the first times we've had uh, that on this scale, although we have not gotten the kind of effects that they were seeing just as close as Kentucky. Wow. Okay, so as we look ahead to the rest of the summer, we all pray that it stays cool, but it may not. So tell me, what will you be watching for? Uh, well, um, we were just entering drought as of last week. You know, in the U.S. Drought Monitor, it showed a lot of parts of the state as abnormally dry or in the early stages of drought. But then we got a lot of rain this past weekend, <laughs> so I mm. don't think that's going to be a concern at the moment. But that's definitely something to keep an eye out for this summer. It's very easy to dip back into drought. All right. 
We're going to be trying to stay cool out there, all of us. Caroline Eggers covers the environment for WPLN News. Caroline, thank you for everything, and you stay cool during this holiday. (laughs) Yeah, you too. When we have to take a short break, when we come back, we'll take a quick trip out to the zoo to learn about the conservation work that goes on there. What's your favorite animal to see at the zoo? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colona, and this is Nashville. Heading out to the zoo is a treat for young people and animal lovers. Think about it. How excited were you for the class field trip to your local zoo? Although we're in the midst of summer vacation, there are plenty of young people and others who are lining up to see their favorite animals every day. Not only do zoos provide safe spaces and places for animals, they also have been engaging in conservation efforts to better improve the conditions of the animals in their care and to enhance the natural habitats for them when they're reintroduced to the wild. So what's an episode about the zoo without a visit to the zoo, right? We sent our producer, Elizabeth Burton, out last week where she met eight-year-old Nashville Zoo enthusiast Robert Frazier. So right by Snake Bites, which is a bar, is the Unseen New World, which is the Reptile House. So right now we're standing right in front of the entrance, because I love reptiles. Now let's go see my girlfriend. Okay, let's go, let's go. So she's a green anaconda. How did you steal her heart? Because she thought I was handsome. (laughs) Anyways, I have questions for my mom. So, what is your favorite animal over here? Hmm. I like the red pandas a lot. I think they're really cute. And that's all I have for my mom. (laughs) Um, For this part of the episode, um, I'll be the host. This is Robert Frazier of This is Nashville. Okay, now let's ask an adult about... I'm a hoof stock keeper. I work with most animals that have hoofs here, so rhinos, giraffes, uh, all the animals in Africa field, stuff like that. So one of the coolest parts was getting to come here and seeing the exhibits as a kid, and now that I'm older, I get to actually like walk out on the exhibits, clean them, stuff like that. I'm gonna have to find some kids, though. Can you make your favorite animal sound? That's a monkey. What about you? Do you have an animal sound? Um, a tri-snake. A snake? How does this snake go? Yes. Um, <laughs> nice, nice. I love it. Robert, you have any more questions for them? No. And this is Robert Frazier. This is Nashville. <laughs> He's just signing off. Thanks for that, Elizabeth and Robert. Look, that kid is real good. I better look out. (laughs) To learn more about what the Nashville Zoo is doing to help conserve animal species, I'd like to introduce my next guests, both 
from the Nashville Zoo. Sherry Reinch is the lead herpetology keeper, and Jim Bartow is the marketing and public relations director. Sherry, Jim, thank you so much. Bartow, pardon me. Sherry and Jim, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Really great. Okay, so Sherry, you're working to help with this hellbender salamander. Okay, talk to me about this salamander. Describe what they look like. All right. So they can get up to two and a half feet long. They are fully aquatic, so they live in the water, and they're usually a shade of brown or green, sometimes a little bit of orange. Um, But they're kind of flattened because they live under rocks, but they they look like a lizard, but they're amphibians and they're aquatic. Okay, two and a half feet long. Is that one of the largest salamanders in North America? Yes, it's one of the largest in North America, um, but they have relatives in China and Japan that can get almost to six feet. Okay. You said that they live underwater, so pretty much their habitats are streams yes, and, and creeks and things. Yep, and they live in Middle Tennessee and Eastern Tennessee. What do they eat? Um, in the wild, their primary diet is crayfish, but they'll also eat small fish and other things they just kind of come upon. Okay, so they eat crayfish, so they're, they can move pretty quickly. They're, they're spry. Uh, well, they're more sit and wait predators. They're nocturnal, um, and they—it's kind of like a big vacuum. They open their mouth and they just suck in whatever's right in front of them, and the water will pass through their. Uh, they have gill slits, so it, it's like a big vacuum. Okay, so tell me what what is it like to handle them? Uh, well, one of their nicknames is called snot otters, so they're they're kind of slimy and they can get kind of sticky. Um, so with amphibians, you don't want to handle them too much. So we try try not to handle them, but they. Uh, uh, they're kind of slimy and, and slippery. Okay, their nickname is Snot Otters. Yes. When, I, I love that. Yeah. Um, they Other people call them old lasagna sides because they have uh, some lateral folds on their side. It actually helps them absorb oxygen so they can breathe uh, underwater and they don't have to come to the surface like oh. uh, frogs or snakes or turtles do. Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm going to take you back. It's yeah. the 1980s. Okay. And uh, we had some creeks behind the neighborhood where I grew up in, in the suburbs of Baltimore. I would capture salamanders okay. and take them back home. Like, have them in my pocket. I'd show up for dinner. I'm like, Mom, can we keep this? Yep. And she's like, no, you really can't. And, you know, but I understand what you mean. They get sticky because my entire pocket was just a, a stick fest, oh, essentially. Yeah. yeah, I did that, too. It's a lot of fun. It so, sure is. So tell me, what, what are the threats that the hellbender salamander, what threats do they face in the wild? Uh, well, one of the biggest ones seems to be um, pollution. The uh, hellbender larva... They're really small, and they seem to live in, uh, it's called the interstitial spaces of gravel, so it's in between uh, just little pieces of rock, and it will get filled in with um, sediment and siltation from roads and farms and fields. Um, And so what we're finding in the wild is we're only finding old animals. We're not really finding any young or uh, medium-aged animals, so we think in the um, pollution from the sediment is, is filling in their spaces, so they're either... Um, getting eaten faster than they normally would, or they're just they're just not surviving. So, so if I'm walking by a stream in an open water space, how can I tell if I've run into a pool of you know hellbender sal- salamander larva? Um, you wouldn't at all. Oh, really? No, they um, they're really hard to locate. Even the adults are really hard to locate. You could be in the stream and and never even know they're there um, because the, the adults will live under really large rocks. Um, and because they're nocturnal and they don't have to come out to breathe, like no one will know they're there. Um, but because the the larvae and the juveniles are so small and can live in tiny little cracks and crevices in uh, tree roots or in the banks, um, 
people just don't know they're there. Okay, so I, I understand that they have, you know, these potential pollutants that are disrupting their life cycle. What are some predators that they keep an eye out for? Um, fish, different fish, or even crayfish, or um, sometimes other hellbenders will eat small ones too. Wow. So, yeah, it's a... Fish eat fish world out there. Fish eat fish world. Okay, (laughs) so that's interesting. It's like this eons-long evolutionary battle between hellbender salamanders and crayfish. Mm -hmm. They both eat each other. Oh, yeah. That's pretty wild. Why do—why are they called hellbenders? Um, There's not a real definitive answer as to why they have that name. Um, Some people said they were— a long time ago, they were a lot more abundant, and so sometimes they would be seen during the day. Um, and so they're not—some people don't think they're the cutest animals out there. Um, so they're kind of not great looking, and they'd be crawling out of giant rocks, and some people would say they're either hell-bent on getting out of the river or um, trying to escape hell, I guess. Uh, I was wondering if they were maybe more aggressive back in the day and, like, come out from under a rock and come at people. But No. <laughs> they're, they're pretty docile. Yeah, well— I, just like every most things, you're afraid of what's bigger than you because they'll try and eat you. So sure. generally, uh, no. Okay. So what's the zoo doing to help them bounce back? Uh, so we, um, back in 2015, we started a Head Start program. So um, hellbenders lay eggs. Um, the female will actually lay eggs and the male will fertilize and then the female leaves um, and the male will stay with those eggs. Um, so what we do is we will identify nests and we'll take a small portion of the nest back to the zoo in a biosecure uh, building and we'll raise those for four to seven years until they're kind of past the point of um, not doing as well um, mm. growing up. And then we, we've started releasing them back. We started in 2021 and we did our third release um, in May of this year. How about how many eggs are in the average clutch? Um, about 500. So we're really wow. taking less than 100. So we're not taking all. So we're still giving um, the remaining eggs a chance to um, make it on their own. And then we're just kind of giving these other ones a boost. That sounds so, so cool. Now, Jim, this program is really exciting and interesting. What are some, tell me about some of the zoo's other conservation efforts. Well, it's really kind of broad ranging. You know, a lot of the stuff that we do involves financial support to other um, conservation organizations around the planet. And um, one good example of that is the work that we're doing to support giant anteaters in uh, Peru. Uh, there's a lot of development down there, a lot of roads that are being developed, and anteaters are getting hit on the highways. They wander up onto the highways, they get hit by vehicles. So there's some research that's being done to try to figure out what their travel patterns are. Can we create land bridges or tunnels under here? Can we create fencing? Can we fund that kind of stuff to be able to provide pathways for these animals to safely traverse into the range that they're in? Um, To figure that out, they need radio collars. Um, So the zoo helps fund uh, radio collars for giant anteaters, and it's just a step for conservation. So sometimes it's just a, a, a little step, a little bit of support that we give there. Um, We also have, like Sherry does, we have boots on the ground that we're doing. Um, We do uh, some census work with the Nashville crayfish, which is only found in the Mill Creek watershed. We do that about once a year, go out and count how many are in different areas. And we work with uh, TDEC, uh, Tennessee Department of Environmental Conservation 
in um, helping to gather that data and share that data with other people to determine if these animals are continuing to be healthy, are they on the decline, are they increasing, um, so on and so forth. Uh, we do a lot of um, breeding, um, captive breeding programs, um, and these breeding programs are largely meant to keep a healthy captive population, kind of like um, Noah and his ark, right? He hmm. took animals two by two to save the planet. Well, zoos in America are kind of one big arc together. We all have uh, a species of, say, clouded leopards, which we breed quite a bit of clouded leopards. Um, and to do that, you need to have a genetic gene pool that's healthy enough, it's diverse enough to be able to match them up. So if we have seven zoos across the country that are breeding clouded leopards, there's some person that kind of keeps up with all that, a stud book. And so those animals are then paired up with other animals of, of genetic difference to be able to create that diversity in that line as it grows and to keep that healthy population, that healthy captive population. How, the, su how successful has that program been for the clouded leopards? Uh, the captive population has been very successful at Nashville Zoo. It's, um, it's, it's doing very well itself. We also work with um, people in the native areas where these clouded leopards are found to help preserve habitat areas where these animals um, can stay in the wild. Um, we're working with uh, uh, organizations that confiscate uh, people that go in will sometimes trap these animals and sell them on, on the pet trade or they'll um, get the cubs and sell the cubs on the pet trade. Um, so these animals are confiscated and um, uh, cared for and then re-released back into the wild and we go to help them as well mm -hmm. with that um, raising process. So there's an educational element. We send people over that way. So I understand you've been with the zoo for more than 20 years. I, I've been there a long time, yes. And so how have you seen these conservation programs? How have they grown in that time since you've been there? I think it's really more the amount that we do, that the number of different activities that we're involved in, either financially or boots on the ground or breeding purposes or for whatever it is that we're doing. You know, when I first started, we had a handful. The Cloud of Leper was certainly one of the ones that we started with early, and we've been doing that for well over 20 years. Um, but there's other things that have started um, a little bit later. Like Sherry said, in 2015, we added the hellbenders into there. Nashville crayfish was added in later. Um, as we build new exhibits and present new animals to the Nashville public, we start getting involved in a new conservation effort for that particular animal. Like mm. when we opened up the spider monkey exhibit a few years ago, we started supporting spider monkey work in South America, right? So this is one of the ways that we continue to expand our conservation work is to, is to get invested in that. And it may start with just financial support with an organization, but that organization may say, look, we actually need people down here to help us teach children why it's important to keep these animals in the habitat or build a school to be able to teach children that or um, help us trap 
spider monkeys and put radio collars on them so we can figure out, mm. you know, what their range is, these kind of things. So it kind of grows in that effort, and we start those relationships. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. We're talking this hour about the Nashville Zoo and wildlife conservation efforts with Sherry Reinch and Jim Bartu. We tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, I'd like to introduce my next guest. Monica Pretz is a staff biologist and pollinator program leader at the Tennessee Environmental Council. Monica, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate you being here. Now, you work in collaboration with the zoo on pollinator programs. And last month, late last month, there was a pollinator event at the zoo. Can you tell us? what the event was about and how it went. Yes, uh, definitely. In June 19th to 25th was Pollinator Week, National Pollinator Week. And we were tabling all around Nashville area. We started actually at the Adventure Science Center on Monday and finished on Saturday at the Nashville Zoo. And uh, it was a fantastic event. We have met a lot of uh, families, small children, bigger children and their parents. And we were talking about pollinator species to them, how to support pollinator species and why pollinator species are so extremely important for a healthy ecosystem and also for our own life. What were some of the specifics you taught people? Yeah, so one of the most important is that we always try to tell people that pollinator species are rapidly declining due to habitat loss and use of insecticides and herbicides. And that is a big problem because pollinators support a healthy ecosystem. Insects are the base of the food chain in nature, and without them, the whole world ecosystem would collapse. Insects are really important food source for aquatic life, for fish, for bird species. And 96% of terrestrial birds actually feed their nestling with insects. We were also talking with the children and the families about host plant specializations. Pollinator species evolve together with native plants and they need native plants to complete their life cycles. So for example, to, to tell you an example is the monarch butterfly. We all know this beautiful orange endangered species, the monarch butterfly. A lot of people watch them and love them, but do we realize how important that monarch butterfly can only lay their eggs on milkweed plants? So that is called host plant specialization. And actually 90% of insects are host plant specialists and they can only lay their eggs on certain plants. So for example, we created a puzzle for children where they needed to find the pairs. For example, purple cornflower is the host plant for the silver checkerspot butterfly or milkweed for the monarch or uh, blue false indigo is the host plant for the frosted elfin. Wild bergamot is host plant for orange mint moth. Mm -hmm. So our program, the Generate Some Boss program, is really building on these plants. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization where people can join, order seed packets, and they can have all these beautiful wildflowers in their own garden and okay. build beautiful pollinator gardens. So I, I want to ask you about that. We've done a few shows on the habitat and the importance of having thriving pollinators in the environment. Particularly, we did one last year with monarch butterflies where we talked about them. But, you know, some people, they really want to have like this very beautiful, very detailed manicured lawn. 
How can maintaining our lawns affect pollinators in an adverse way? Yes, unfortunately, we do love our lawn. We love it green and very short, which is an ecological desert for pollinator species. As I mentioned, they need the native plants because they evolve to get. Monica, okay, you with us? We lost her real quick. We'll, can, as as we work to getting her back, Jim. Yeah, I, yeah, I can actually jump in here. This, this she the makes a really good point. Is a potential. Monica. She makes a really good point. Yes, okay. every backyard and backyard. Yes. <laughs> okay, here we go. Continue, Monica, please. This is live radio. This is how it goes on a Monday. Okay, so there's a potential right in our community. You can order seeds from Tennessee Environmental Council. You can remove your lawn and create a wildflower habitat, which is a sustainable habitat because you don't need to water it. You don't need to cut the grass everywhere. And you will create a habitat that will bring in beautiful butterfly and, and native bees mm -hmm. uh, to the garden. Jim? Yeah, she makes a really good point. And you don't, I, I know people love their beautiful green lawns. I love mine, right? But you don't have to get rid of your entire lawn. All we're asking people to do is carve out a little section to make a, a flower garden. And when you make a flower garden, make it a native flower garden. Make sure that the flowers that you're getting, the uh, different plants that you're getting are host plants for these animals because this prov provides basically a food stop mm. on their way. Monarchs migrate from Canada all the way down to Mexico and back again. It takes them three generations to get that done. And they need to stop every so often and eat. So they need these little restaurants, these little food stations. It doesn't take a lot, a little section of your lawn, um, and you can you can help feed them. Now, Sherry, the salamanders you work with, they live in bodies of water. What are some ways that we can protect our streams and creeks out here? Um, it's always, you know, uh, don't pollute, pick up your garbage. Yeah. Um, it's also, um, you know, if you have land bordering a river, just having a uh, riparian zone, just, you know, if throw some butterfly weed out there between the, between your field and the river, between your lawn and the river, just give her a buffer zone of, of plants will hold the, uh, erosion and sediment away from getting into the river. A lot uh, of people like to mow right up to the edge of their creeks that are in their backyard and that doesn't help the creek it it causes erosion so you want to keep about a you know five to ten foot distance on each side of the creek and just let, leave it alone um remove evasive plants invasive plants that are there and plant it with native plants and let the creek be the creek um and it will it will bounce back and it will start to attract this this native life again. So you all are talking about changing our aesthetic preferences rather than having my lawn look like a putting green. <laughs> I want it more to look like a natural habitat. We want a section of it. We want you to to we want you to live with nature and not try to keep nature at at arm's length from you. We want you to invite nature in as part of uh, living together on this planet. Okay, so final question for you, Jim. You know, how it takes a lot for everybody to be on the same page, the public, government, and the business community. How is the zoo bringing together these three groups to work in conservation? Well, in many ways, we already are. We work with the government 
uh, like I mentioned before, TDEC, TWRA, we work with um, the local government to be able to make these um, uh uh, preservation to do the cleanup that we need to do to establish the riparian zones. Um, the government itself actually does a really good job helping to enforce that creek riparian zones for development. So as businesses are are trying to develop around creeks, particularly blue line creeks, those creeks that are constantly flowing throughout the year, they have requirements that you can't build too close to that because we want to keep that area uh, a natural. And then you know, from there, it's just working with uh, other folks in more rural areas or areas where there's more farming, even in, in neighborhoods, to not um, over-fertilize. You know, you're, the, the green is, is a good green. It doesn't it's necessarily need to be a deeper green because that can also cause animals to disappear in the creek that might be flowing behind your backyard. All right. Now, Jim Partu is... Jim Bartu, pardon me, is the Marketing and Public Relations Director at the Nashville Zoo. He was joined by Sherry Reinch, the lead herpetology keeper. I want to thank you both for being here. Really appreciate this. Thank you. That's great. Monica Pertz will be with us through the break. When we come back, we'll zoom out and talk about wider conservation efforts in our city and region. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. With a changing environment, the need to increase our conservation efforts becomes paramount for us all. Before the break, we learned about the conservation efforts at the Nashville Zoo. But who else is working not only to conserve our environments, but to revitalize it as well? My next guests are here to tell us about what they've been doing. Abby Duncan is a board member, and Dr. Eleanor Lopez is treasurer of the Nashville of the Native American Indian Association. Abby Eleanor, thanks for being with us. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate you both being here. Good to see you again, Eleanor. Now, you know, we just heard about conservation efforts at the zoo that it, that they're undertaking, but you know, as we talked, you know, about before on the show, the indigenous roots of our city go way, way back. How important is it to have indigenous voices in the conservation conversation? And I'd really like for both of you to answer this question. Abby, you first. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Um, I'd say it's critical. Um, there was a UN report, UN backed report a few years ago that um, talked about uh, traditional and ancestral lands. I um, mean, in that report, they said that uh, a quarter of our lands globally are held or utilized um, by native people, by indigenous people. And in those areas, um, the uh, biodiversity and natural resources decline much more slowly. They still decline and some of that, uh, I think we'll get to, uh, is due to cultural loss as well. But um, there's this distinct difference when indigenous people are included in the conversation. Eleanor, what are your thoughts? Yes, Abby said it really well. Um, when we include indigenous people and that traditional indigenous knowledge in our conservation efforts, they tend to be more successful. 
Now, Abby, tell me this. How does your heritage, how does that influence your approach to conservation? Yeah, um, so I'm an enrolled citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Um, and I didn't grow up in Oklahoma. Um, and so I think that for me, um, conservation and learning about our natural resources and history with those resources is um, so important to be able to also learn my cultural history and pass that down to my children. They're interwoven. They can't be connected. As we know, indigenous means tied to the land. Um, and so um, our cultures and the environment around us are inseparable. So tell me, how can we be thinking about our environment as a whole rather than in a partial manner? I think focusing on conservation efforts, um, not piecemeal, but uh, more holistically and broadly is essential. Um, I think that uh, any agencies or organizations that engage in this type of work really need to lean in and um, tap into the traditional knowledge of the people that occupied the ancest ancestral lands that they um, now occupy. Um, and open conversations to where indigenous people can lead research, uh, participate in the research, um, and um, contribute to what other work uh, is going on. Now, Eleanor, I see you're nodding your head when she said that. Yes, this is so important. Thank you for sharing that, Abby. When what I see a lot in the conservation space is academics going to other places, other continents, other countries, sometimes within our own country and discovering things about the natural world without first consulting or even consulting before they go to do this type of work, the native people of those places. So are we really discovering something new or are we just documenting for the academic gaze, things that indigenous people have known for thousands and thousands of years. Talk to me about what the level of communication is like, like between organizations that focus on cons cons conservation. You know, is that, is it strong? Is it robust? And if not, how can it be improved? So I think that it, go oh, ahead, go Abby. Ahead. Um, I think that it widely varies depending on the agency or organization. Some organizations are very mindful to keep those connections and collaborations, and other um, organizations sometimes have a blind spot, and a lot of that falls on um, the lack of knowledge today about contemporary Native issues. Um, and so it's important before starting any of that work to do some of that groundwork in building relationships and understanding how it impacts uh, descendant communities as well. Eleanor, your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm. for this in particular, my background is more research and academia. Um, I think representation is incredibly important. And now we have our first Native American um, head of the Department of the Interior, Deb Holland. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, and with the organization we've been reached out to by certain groups like um, the Southeastern Grasslands folks at Austin P, very concerned with native grassland and prairie restoration. And part of these calls at the federal level 
there is a incentive to include traditional indigenous knowledge and native groups, native tribes, um, groups like ours that are intertribal um, in these calls to do land restoration. Would you like to see better cooperation between the groups where, you know, the environment is the common ground? Absolutely. Um, it's a lot of grant making. Um, mm. Outreach is great, but having more of those, you know, continual conversations of how can we all work together whenever we do that, um, I think that the possibilities for this sort of larger scale, you know, not just, oh, my own backyard, but how can we work in our public spaces and our communal spaces uh, mindfully? That That's something that Deb Holland, the interior secretary, did mention. She was my congressperson when I lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So it's good to have a connection back to that place. Now, mm-hmm. Monica Pretz with the Tennessee Environmental Council is still with us. Thank you again, Monica, for being here. Let, let me ask you this, Monica. You're originally from Europe and you've studied in other cultures how in, in other countries how did how did how do you think conservation efforts here compare to other parts of the world thank you for that question it's very interesting because indeed i grew up in europe in hungary and uh, i studied in the netherlands and i moved to nashville about 6 years ago and um, definitely I see a difference and some delay, but I do see that there is a huge increase and in interest in the Nashville area in Tennessee about conservation efforts. And especially I'm talking about pollinators. Indeed, uh, in Europe, about 20 years ago, all these pollinator projects started and there were some um, problems with uh, people, groups, uh, some of them. Uh, creating pollinator habitats, others mowing it down. And uh, definitely education, communication is the key to those problems. And I'm very excited to be in Tennessee and in Nashville because Tennessee Environmental Council doing an excellent job with a lot of devoted, passionate people working on this. And um, I wanted to mention quickly that because native pollinator gardens are sometimes people wonder about it. And if you want to see what a healthy native habitat looks like in person, I would suggest just drive out to Stratford's Dam in East Nashville. Those gardens are in full bloom right now. And honestly, I could talk hours about pollinator species and beautiful wildflowers, but being there, seeing it with your own eyes, and it's not a complicated thing. It's an easy solution that everyone can do. You don't need to be a biologist. You don't need to be a gardener. The only thing you need is a good heart and a love for the environment in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So tell me, do you think that, like the people of Tennessee, do you think that we're being taught and educated properly about what's happening to our habitat and our environment? I think we are catching up and I think Tennessee Environmental Council is exactly doing that job and not just us, there are many environmental groups in Tennessee and and all around actually in the United States, Xerces Society is one of the biggest uh, uh, invertebrate conservation uh, group and organization and uh, they are doing a fantastic job. And I wanted to mention that Tennessee Environmental Council has many programs, many conversation efforts, not just the pollinator program, but we also have a watershed support center, which is working towards uh, conserving and restoring healthy watershed and, and clean drinking water. We also have the Tennessee Tree Program, 
um, the recycling education and recycle roundups and also compost your compost program. So we are really reaching out to all kinds of conservation efforts. And all of this can be done by anyone. You can all join. You can all be part of the solution. You know, I was asking our, our one of our guests, Dr. Eleanor Lopez, about communication between these groups. How do you feel the communication is between all of the variety of groups who are working in the state for conservation efforts? Is it strong? And if not, can it be improved? I think the only way to move forward is a united way. And I do think we have amazing programs with many of these organizations, uh, Cumberland River Compact or Harpers uh, Conservancy and many other groups or Xerces Society as well. So the only way to solve these program, problems is that we work together as a, a united uh, people of the the country because we we all need to take a stand we all need to do our parts look working together is the only way we're going to handle any of the issues and problems that we face now if you're just tuning in this is nashville and i'm your host khalil e. Colonna. we're talking this hour about conservation efforts in middle tennessee with abby duncan Dr. Eleanor Lopez and Monica Pretz. You can tweet us your comments at this is Nashville. Now, in you know, in terms of education, you know, let, let's let's all lean into a little bit about what our homes and neighborhoods, what we can do to encourage a sustainable and healthy environment. Eleanor, tell us what are some plants that we can use that we can nurture in our yards and gardens that would fit right in seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Um. That's a great question. And my answer is it depends on what kind of space you're dealing with, right? Some, okay. some plants will do better in full sun. Some plants will thrive in the shade if you already have trees. Um, and there are some great groups. I just wanted to mention one. Um, the Cumberland River Compact and Root Nashville did work with us on getting some native trees. So that's, for example, a great group and a great resource for what could I plant in my um, on my land that would support native um, ecology. What about folks who may have a non-native tree and mm-hmm. shrub in their backyard? And it's a really majestic, beautiful looking tree, but it might not necessarily fit with the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. What can they do? Yeah. So there are resources for learning about how invasive a non-native plant is. Um, There's some beautiful tropical plants that we can keep outside for a little bit and that we can plant um, that aren't from this continent. And they're not going to do any harm. They're not going to spread and outcompete our native plants. So if you find plants like that, those are okay. They're still going to support some of our pollinators um, and other wildlife. But it's the invasive ones like the Bradford pears, um, the tree of heaven, some of those that we really want to avoid or remove mm-hmm. if we have them. Okay. Now, Abby, you were talking earlier about the interconnectedness and of our environment. Talk to me a little bit more about that. How can, how can understanding that help with revitalization efforts? Yeah. Um, our efforts are always more successful when we take everything um, in whole and we don't, um, you know, hone in on or, or focus on um, one aspect of conservation. Um, I think we do a pretty good job of that, um, but sometimes we get so focused that we're um, we forget to take everything together. 
Um, I know for um, me, for instance, my um, children, like I said, learn a lot of our, our traditional culture through our plants. And so recognizing that um, cultural revitalization and um, uh, biodiversity and environment all tie together and, and are essentially uh, inseparable um, is, is very important to keep in mind. And so in supporting uh, communities, tribes um, that do this work too, um, NAIA is doing a lot of work out at the Cultural Center Grounds. Uh, you're also supporting um, good environmental practices too. You know, what you're talking to me, it, it kind of feels like it's a spiritual mission as well as, you know, life forms and beings on the planet. We have a large faith-based community out here. I, in fact, I met with some Quakers not too long ago, a few weeks ago, who take a holistic and entire approach of looking at Earth and life on the planet. You know, Eleanor, when we think about conservation and revitalization, how can, how can our spirituality and or our faith help us in those efforts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something that Abby can probably speak to better than I can um, when it comes to the Native perspective. But for me, um, a lot of this knowledge was uh, many Native practices are repackaged as something different, mm. like permaculture or biodynamics or a regenerative practice. And I'm really interested in how we can honor those deep spiritual roots of conservation on this continent in a way that is not extractive, but that creates a more reciprocal and sustainable um, relationship between native cultures in a way that honors them. And instead of taking and repackaging some of those deep spiritual roots in a way that's respectful. Um, well, a Abby, talk to me about that. Talk to me about the spiritual connection that's there. Yeah. So... <clears throat> It's hard to speak broadly. I mean, there's 574 federally recognized tribes, lots of other state organizations. Um, so everyone's belief and worldview uh, is going to be a little bit different. But I would say broadly, um, indigenous people maintain that connection to the la land because of the understanding that we are all the same stuff. Um, we are, a lot of our origin stories were you know, birthed from the soil or we emerge from um, the earth. We live on it, we care for it. And when we die, we return to it and um, then we sustain new life. So there is often a spiritual connection where um, if you are working towards that end, um, you're not just sustaining life you're sustaining for future generations you're you're sustaining yourself um and th that is i think a, a spiritual thread you'll see very commonly throughout mm. a lot of our cultures now you know our city is continuing to grow development is not slowing down and these actions can they often very much certainly disrupt the ecosystem that's already in a fragile place monica what do we need to keep in mind as we make accommodations for new and existing residents of Nashville? Thank you for that question, because definitely uh, urbanization is a huge problem for pollinator species, but we also know that we cannot stop development. So we have to take 
and find a solution in this. And I believe that is that every front yard and every backyard can be a pollinator habitat. If we plant them and restore habitats, then we plant native plants, native trees, native shrubs, native um, wildflowers. Those gardens, even though we lose some of um, natural uh, areas, can become beautiful habitats for pollinator species. And of course, I think one of one important thing is that we not only need to do it as residents, uh, as Tennesseans, but we have to, as I said before, educate uh, communities and we have to reach out to HOAs. If they change, if it, we manage to convince them to change their regulations and um, instead of um, banning no more May or no more April, they would support these programs. If they would support planting native trees and ban uh, invasive species in new neighborhoods, that would be already a big step. Mm. Now, Abby, tell me, what do you want people listening? What do you want them to keep in mind as we all move forward into the future? Thank you, that's a great question. Um, I really would like for um, organizations to communicate well, uh, to reach out to Native people, um, people that held uh, the ancestral lands they're on. Um, I really would like for um, people to educate themselves on the history of the people in their area. So, Like I said earlier, sometimes it doesn't always get communicated in our schools. Um, and so visibility is an issue for us. Um, and to reach out to the organizations that are around you um, and you know our organization included and find out how you can participate, how you can be involved. Um, it's really important, as Monica said, to really work together as a community, all communities. That is Abby Duncan. She's a board member at the Native American Indian Association. She was joined by Dr. Eleanor Lopez, treasurer of NAIA, and Monica Pretz, who is with the Tennessee Environmental Council. I want to thank you all for being with us today. Really appreciate it. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Burton. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. You can tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. 